Thank you and be seated. Gail and I appreciate your prayers very much and the love of this church. If you would open your Bibles this morning to Mark as we go back to our series in the Gospel according to Mark. And we are in chapter 4 and we are in verses 35 through 41. Our culture is filled with expressions concerning Mother Nature such as you can't fool Mother Nature or Mother Nature made me the way I am or anything built by man can be destroyed by Mother Nature or Mother Nature and Father Time have not been too kind to me or Mother Nature will have the last word and on such sayings go. Reminded of a sermon I heard years ago, actually it was in 2005, by Pastor Albert N. Martin. And the title of the sermon was Katrina and Rita, Children of Mother Nature or of Father God. Mother Nature or Father God. The title is very revealing and in itself is a message. But one thing that I believe that title does is address what I would assess as growing, increasing pantheism in our nation over the last number of years. It's very intense. And it's very much related, I think, that title is related to our text before us today in Mark chapter 4. Now, pantheism is defined, and I give you a, a definition here as, quote, the belief that God and the universe are the same things rather than separate things. In other words, pantheism does not distinguish between God and creation, but it says, in effect, that God is all and all is God. Now, pantheism deifies nature and it humanizes God. Daniel Mason writes that pantheism believes that, quote, the environment is sacred because the environment is God, or at least God-like. By contrast, the theistic view sees the environment as sacred because the environment is the platform whereby God reveals himself. Mount Sinai is set apart because or made special because God revealed himself to Moses. Mount Sinai is not special simply because it is Mount Sinai. His point is it's the presence of God, which is a distinction from the mountain itself. While an ancient concept, pantheism seems to be increasing in first world or developed countries such as the United States, Western Europe, and other places around the world. I think we can see its footprint in what we might call extreme environmentalism. I think that is a construct, in fact, of pantheism. Robert Hunter, who was co-founder of Greenpeace and written in a book called excuse me, Ecology is Religion, writes the following. While the enjoyment of a sunset from a Christian or Jewish perspective 
might have some religious overtones as an aspect of God's creation, and we do. We look at a beautiful sunset and we say, how great they all are. It's beautiful. It's the handiwork of God. So he's making that concession, but he goes on to say, in pantheism, the reverence for the sunset is heightened to the point that to pollute the sunset is to defile God. And so God is all, all is God, God is creature, or excuse me, creation, nature, and therefore to do anything against that is to sin against God because it is God. It is interesting that in modern cultures, this distinction between God and the creator and uh, his creation, the earth, um, are increasingly being blurred. And it also is striking that, that once we would define a society as primitive, if it held to such paganistic concepts. But in our own country, as the value of life diminishes, it seems that this aspect is increasing. Yes, as Christians, we should be champions of the earth. It's God's creation. Yes, just as and we should practice just stewardship. We are instructed to care for our bodies. Why? Because they are the temple of the Lord. They belong unto God. And in like fashion, I think we should be good stewards of God's creation because it too belongs unto God. However, we do not deify nature, the earth, or the environment. Well, this title of the sermon that I mentioned by Pastor Martin calls attention to the deifying of nature, Mother God, excuse me, Mother Nature or Father God. Nature is not an entity, and it does not have rights, and I'll, I'm sure you've read this. I could cite case after case where rivers or mountains or uh, a piece of property somewhere are given rights, human rights, what we would think of as human rights. And that, you know, that's, that's a striking thought in our day that, that creation is recognized as an entity that can have a right. But nature is not a deity. It's not God or the universe doesn't possess some universal consciousness. God alone is God. And nature is God's creation. And it's subservient to the Lord. And it's used by the Lord for his glory and for the good of his people. With that in mind, I call your attention to our text in Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse number 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat. So that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher! Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Let's seek the face of God in prayer. Holy Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And grant us now, Lord, sustenance, our daily bread from your word. Father, open the word of God to us and us to the word of God. Feed your people, instruct us, teach us, guide us, encourage us, nurture us. And those present that know not Christ, Lord, also we ask that you speak to their hearts. That they may, in faith, worship the God of creation rather than the creation of God. Lord, would Christ be exalted in our presence. And may we look upon him with all, even as these disciples did, asking and answering the question, who then is this? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin with the content. You recall, I'm not going to go back through everything, but you recall the progression that we have noted in the Gospel of Mark. I think every speaker has talked about the way that the, the uh, narration is moving forward. And we've also talked about the sandwich technique that Mark uses both in uh, individual or independent passages and he also uses in a, in a contextual way, in a greater way, or the Holy Spirit through Mark uses. We begin in Mark 1, verse 15, with a declaration of the kingdom, this great news, this gospel message pertaining to the kingdom of God, Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now that declaration is followed in chapter 1 verses 16 through chapter 3 verse 34 with a demonstration of the declaration Christ just made. He said the kingdom of God is at hand and now he's going to demonstrate that. It will be demonstrated by uh, his sovereign, his effectual call of people that will be disciples, that of those he will choose apostles that will follow him. It will be declared in the fact that he heals a man with an unclean spirit. He heals uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law. He heals many others. Uh, he goes about preaching. Uh, he cleanses the leper and so on. He heals the paralytic. And we keep going through. So this declaration of the coming of the kingdom the presence of the kingdom of God is is then demonstrated to us by a series of miracles and that series of miracles then is followed in chapter 4 verse 1 verse uh, excuse me chapter 1 verse 1 through verse 34 with a series of parables that teach us what the kingdom of God is is or what it is like so i have a declaration i have a demonstration i have an explanation and then beginning in chapter 4 verse 35 which really 
if we were going to go back through and, and reassign chapters here, we'd probably reassign verses 35 and following into chapter 5. But now we go back from, from the, the declaration, the demonstration, the explanation, and now what do we come back to? Here's our sandwich. We come back to a demonstration of the kingdom of God through a series of miracles again. And there are four, basically, miracles beginning here in chapter 4, verse 35, going through chapter 5. And this, in this series of miracles, Mark is revealing to us the king of the kingdom. Who is this? What is he like? In the calming of the storm, we find that this king reigns over the forces of nature. Then moving into chapter 5 with the exorcism of legion, the king reigns over the power of darkness. Then with the healing of the woman, with the issue of blood, the king reigns over sickness and disease. And then with the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, the king reigns over death. And so we have this king that's being declared to us. It's being, he's being demonstrated who he is. This great gospel message. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's declared. Then it's, it, it's uh, demonstrated. And then it's explained. And now again we're back to the demonstration of this kingdom. And the kingdom. The kingdom and the king of God. Now in our text, in verses 35 through 36... It opens with a routine voyage. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, took him with them in a boat just as he was. Archaeology some years ago uncovered a boat on the Sea of Galilee. It was about, I think, about 40 feet long. So it gives you some idea of the size of the boat we're talking about. We're not talking about a dinghy, but we're not talking about the Queen Mary either. We're talking about a boat, but these boats were for fishing, and they would often fish at night. And they would fish at night because it tended to be calmer. Because it was during the day, usually, that the storms that would sweep the Sea of Galilee would, would be more pronounced because of the, of the conflict of the hot and the cold and the wind currents and etc. So usually they, would, they often would fish at night because it was safer, calmer. And so they, they go out on basically a routine voyage. At the end of a long day of teaching and the parables that we've gone through, now Christ tells them, let's cross over to the other side. Sinclair Ferguson writes, They were planning just another crossing of the Sea of Galilee. Some of them were fishermen and knew that lake like the back of their hands. The trip was no more out of the ordinary for them than our daily journey to work. I dare say tomorrow morning when you get up and you go about your business and you get in your automobile to go to your place of employment, you won't think anything of it. You'll just get in your car and go. They just got in a boat and went. That was normal for them. Many of them were fishermen. However, the routine is interrupted in verse 37 because there is a great windstorm that arises and waves are breaking into the boat, and the boat is already beginning to fill with water. Now, this is a horrific storm. It is defined in Greek as exceedingly great loud tempest. An exceedingly great loud tempest. 
So it's not just that you are see you can't see land, I, I would assume, the Sea of Galilee where they were, and the, the crossing's not that large, uh, long, about, like about five miles, I think, where they were crossing. Um, and yet there is the horror of the boat being filled with water, and then there's the noise of the wind that's breaking upon them. Jeff Thomas writes, there seems to be something, yeah, there seems to be even something preternatural about it, as though the God of this world wanted to send a boat and all on the boat to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. This is a horrendous storm. I'm sure Mac in his past could tell us something about some bad storms. I remember my dad in the Coast Guard Navy in World War II talking about being in the North Atlantic and an icebreaker, it was like a bathtub, and being in 90-foot uh, seas. I can't imagine that. 90-foot seas, that's terrifying. This was terrifying. Uh, they're, they're, they're very frightened. So the opening, the, the, the routine voyage is interrupted by this terrifying storm. And in verse 38, then we have a revealing question. But he was in the stern, that is, Jesus was asleep in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, three A's I would point out about this question. That kind of helps us sometimes to think about things, to lay them out with words that begin to sing. There's the accusation of the question. Teacher, do you not care? William Hendrickson writes, it's difficult to ascribe any other meaning to the outcry than that this was an adverse criticism addressed to Jesus as if whatever happened to his disciples did not concern him. And so, yes, we ask questions sometimes, but we ask questions sometimes to criticize someone. And I think there is an accusation in their question. You don't care. And why would they make that accusation? There's an assumption in their question. And the assumption is that he's asleep in the stern of the boat on a pillow. How can he care if he's asleep and we're about to drown? So there is the assumption. And I would just say at this junction, many assume that what we, we often think of as divine silence must mean that God really doesn't care. He hasn't answered my prayer. I don't feel His presence. The heavens are like bars of iron. God, don't you care? Carest thou not that we are perishing? And that is the assumption that God isn't doing something, therefore, or I don't see what He's doing, therefore God must be indifferent to my plight. That is the argument of the agnostic and the atheist, not the believer, not a Christian. The agnostic and the atheist say, well, you know, if God was great and sovereign and God is good, He would hear and He would do something. Either He's not great or He doesn't care. And we go, no. No, that's not at all the reality. 
that what seems like to me silence does not mean that God doesn't care, that he's indifferent. And then there is the last day. There's the absurdity of the question. There is the accusation of the question. Don't you care? There's the assumption of the question. He's asleep. Now there's the absurdity of the question. Where is Jesus? He's in the boat. And if the boat goes down, guess what? He's going down with the boat. The question is absurd. We often ask, or you hear it asked, where is God when thus or so happened? We might retort, where were you when God gave his only begotten son? In the words of the old spiritual hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? And the believer's resounding response to that is, yes. By God's mercy and grace, yes. I was there. Where is God? God is where he's always been. His care is not waned. He's not indifferent. Where was Christ? Well, we can say in the boat, and I'm not going to chase this rabbit today, but theologically, perhaps even more importantly, I could say he's in the flesh. That Christ Jesus came in the flesh. And there he is with his disciples in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And he's there for a purpose. And then verses 39 through 41, we have the dreadful quiet. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. Now what are they afraid of now? It's not the sea. It's not the wind. Christ has hushed them. But now they are filled with megasphere, phobos, great fear. It's interesting as you go through this, you have a great windstorm, you have a great calm, and you have a great fear. One great replaces the next great until you get to that last one. But we have the, the emphasis here upon the disciples' terror of the storm. It's loud, it's terrifying, the boat's filling with water. Years ago, when we were much younger, Gail and I went with a couple who were, we were friends with at that time down to the Okefenokee to go fishing. We went back to about 10 miles out into the swamp to a place called Buzzard Lake. And we were in a, of course, small, you have to use small boats, anything under 10 horsepower. And as we were going out, and you kept seeing these alligators, it looked like they crossed the, the whole canal that we were going down, huge things. 
and they would sink and you'd go over and they'd pop back up. So we go way out to the swamp. Well, on the way back, we had motor problems, of course, outboard engine problems. And we come back to the, kind of to the edge of the main canal, made our way back to there, and uh, it, this is where the motor problem started. And I, we were ahead of the, the couple that we were with, so I just kind of did a slow, lazy circle in the edge of the canal waiting on them to get there. I didn't see it, but when I straightened out the boat, when they got there, the weight came over the, the stern of the boat, and there was water all in the bottom of the boat. And then I started to take off, and the motor went boom. And I went, looked down, and all I could see was water everywhere. And I looked behind me, and I could see the chain for the plug, but I couldn't find the plug. And I thought, oh, my word, we've knocked the plug out. I don't know how, but that was my first thought. And we're sinking. And so I thought, well, I need to get Gail to the bank, let them pick her up, and then if I can go from there, I'll do what I can do. And so I've, she's on crutches. And so I said, I'll get to the edge of a bank. I said, Gil, get out. And she's scared to death because what have we been seeing all day? Alligators. And she gets out of the boat, and they come up, and they get her, and they get in. And, and I did manage to get the boat cranked. And I started out, and I was still fumbling around back there. And I finally found the plug. Oh, the plug's in here. And I still didn't know where the water came from. So I pulled the plug out to run the water out of the boat. And then I thought, I'm going to run out of room. I dropped the plug, and I thought, how am I ever going to get the plug back in? I'm running out of room. I'm going to be at the, at the dock, and there's had to stop and sink, I reckon. But I finally managed to get the plug in and turned around, and they told me what happened. But my point is, it was frightening. It was very scary, especially for Gail, looking at alligators. So these, these disciples, these fishermen, are scared of this great storm. But Christ rebukes the sea in verse 39, the wind and the sea. Not like Xerxes. You remember the Hellespont where Xerxes was invading uh, Greece? And he built a pontoon bridge. And uh, <laughs> the sea destroyed the pontoon bridge. And he got, Xerxes got, the, the, the emperor of Persia got so, so angry he ordered the sea lashed 30 times and threw shackles into it. Like, oh, okay. He's got an ego, doesn't he? But uh, this king rebukes the wind and the waves. Not like Xerxes. But he commands them, be quiet. Be calm. And they do. I anticipate what, uh, I appreciate what R.C. Sproul, uh, how he describes this event. He says, the Lord of glory who created heaven and earth, who was master over nature, gave a command to the elements and was instantly obeyed. Just as the Father had commanded the light to appear in creation, the Son, the, the Son Jesus Christ, said to the wind and sea, Peace, be still. And as soon as the command came from his lips, the sea was like glass. There was not the slightest zephyr to be felt in the air. Everything was calm. So you go from chaos to serenity, just like that. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. Megasphobos, phobia. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
disquiet was unnatural and it was unnerving. Again, I quote from Ferguson. He says, Mark tells us that the stilling of the natural storm raised a spiritual storm in the disciples' heart. They were terrified. And all of a sudden, there is the presence, if I may say it this way, of the awakened God in their boat. And that terrified them more than the storm ever terrified them. Now let's come to some thoughts and points of application as we consider this passage. First, faithfulness in Christ's service does not exempt one from the storms of life. I can't recount how many times through the years I've heard people say, well, I never thought that I would have to face or deal with thus and so. And they're usually leaning back on their faithfulness, that they've been faithful in the service of God. Well, first, we are very, very thankful and grateful for those that are faithful in the service of God. And I want you to notice verse 38. I want you to notice how the disciples address Jesus. Teacher. Didaskalos. Teacher. Now, there were many names by which the disciples could have called upon the Lord. They could have said, Kurios, Lord, Master. They could have said, Christos, Messiah. They could have said, Satorios, Savior. They could have said, Theos, God. But they used the term in the heat of the moment teacher well yes he had just finished teaching all day teaching parables and explaining them to them but somehow or another you would think that the first thing that would come to their mind is not teacher but Messiah Lord Savior God help us but that doesn't come to their minds that's not what they say These faithful disciples had left their families, their work, their homes. Uh, in obedience, they were following Christ. And they had done so in the spite of great obstacles. The Pharisees' hostility, Jesus' own family's rejection and questioning of who Jesus is, the fickleness of the crowd, questions of the disciples of John Baptist, John the Baptist. Yet in spite of all that, they followed. They were where they should be, doing what they should be doing, and yet they are now facing the most terrible storm, perhaps, of their lifetime. Faithfulness does not exempt anyone from difficulties and troubles. Again, I quote Ferguson, who writes, Contrary to the picture sometimes painted of the Christian life, Jesus did not solve all the disciples' problems and protect them from trials and perplexities. In actual fact, sometimes he led them quite deliberately into it. 
And I would think that's probably the case here this night in the scripture. I don't think the storm is of great surprise to our Lord. And yet he deliberately leads his disciples into it. They are obedient. They are doing what they're told to do. They're going where they're told to go. We think of many examples throughout history. We think of the missionaries that uh, were speared to death in the Amazon, Jim Elliott, Nat, Nate uh, Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, Roger Uderin, get his name correct, all die, all are killed by the very people they go to minister to on January the 8th, 1956. Think of the great hymn writer Fanny Crosby. And so many of the hymns that we enjoy singing today come from her pen, and yet she's blind. And if you've never read the story of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, you, you owe it to yourself to read about him and his wife. He was a theologian, teacher, professor at, at uh, Princeton, and very gifted man. And soon after he was married, his wife, I don't know if it was a nervous breakdown or what, but she, she never was right after that. And he loved her dearly and tenderly. He would read to her two or three hours a day. And he taught theology courses at, at Princeton. He would never leave her side. He didn't, he, would, he, he didn't travel. He wouldn't go out and travel. He stayed home so that he could be within about two hours at least of the home. And you go, you look at that and you go, man, what a great gift and how God just brought a storm into his life and what could he have been? I'll tell you what he was. He was a prolific writer and has left us bodies of great works of divinity, which he probably never would have done had he been out all over the universe going different places. God kept him home. And from there he wrote and he taught. And his impact is still felt today. If you, again, B.B. Warfield. You've never heard about him, go, go look him up. You can Google him. Don't do it now. You can Google him and find him. You can find out about his, his life story. When I read about the lives of the apostles, and I read about the lives of people like Eliot, Crosby, and Warfield, I'm reminded of the words of Hebrews 11. Now, they're describing Old Testament saints, but I, I still, these words come to my mind when I think of that. And it's this, this from Hebrews eleven thirty five. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Your uh, Bunyan, the writing of Pilgrim's Progress, where is most of it done? It's done in jail. Uh, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goat, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. No faithfulness, being where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, faithfully following the Lord will not exempt you from difficulty. And one I've already picked up on, and I've mentioned it a moment ago when they addressed Jesus. The second main point is the lessons that we learn in storms are lessons 
you really just about can't learn anywhere else that God teaches us. They had been with Jesus. They had heard the declaration. They had heard him explain the kingdom of God. They had witnessed the demonstration through miracle after miracle after miracle up to this point. And yet, in this moment, they're addressed to him as teacher. There's still something they need to learn about who Jesus Christ really is. And this lesson is an unforgettable lesson. You can only imagine in the years to come, they may have been talking with one another and go, you remember that night on the Sea of Galilee? We thought we were going to sink. We were going to drown. That was it. But the Lord, He rebuked the waves and the wind. Matthew Henry writes, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but at this time their fears prevailed so that they seemed to have no faith at all. And let me just say, I think most of you here know this, you can go through things and situations and difficulties and whatnot in life to the place it will seem like to you that you have no faith at all. I've said before to people that I've I felt like I'd been hanging on by bloodied fingernails. But then I learned it's not me hanging on. It's God. It's God who has the hold. So yes, the Lord can use storms to teach us who He is. He is, in fact, God. You know, men, we often are deluded. In some ways, it's good because of the role that we're called to fulfill. But sometimes, men, we're deluded with, maybe we'll just call it the theos complex, the God complex. You think you can do it all, fix it all, protect them all, handle it all. Your shoulders are big enough. Put it on. I can carry it. Now, again, in the role that we're called to, it's good to have a certain edge. But you also need to know and learn you're not God. And you can't. And you won't. And you will break. God is God. Not you. I hope that we can learn to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Verses 67 through 68, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 119, 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Because sometimes, brothers and sisters, you won't learn God's statutes or right in any other school but the school of suffering. And again, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 75, in faithfulness, God, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Then we come to the distinction and supremacy of God. There is a universal belief in God. We've talked about this often. The Bible talks about it. Sociology, psychology talks about it. There is, a, there is a universal belief in God. You go through space and time, culture, various places, 
there is a there is a innate belief in God. And it's often claimed that this belief and this act of religion is a coping mechanism that helps you cope with life. That the reason that men, women everywhere across the globe at all times believe in God is to help them cope with life because there are things like this mega windstorm that terrifies and they threaten our lives and yet you can't bargain with a hurricane. You can't appease a hurricane. Things like suffering, sickness, disease. It's often said that we have invented our God because we need some way that we can deal with these terrors, these fears, these dangers that we face. I can't do it with the real thing. I can't, I can't negotiate with a lion that's about to eat me. Oh, but they say that you can plead to a God for mercy or you can placate a God's wrath by some sacrifice. Therefore, religion, the belief in God, is a result of our danger and our threats against us. And we need this to humanize, personalize, deify even the threats that we face. But again, I want to quote Sproul. In all of their inventive creativity, the one thing human beings have never done is to invent a God who is more terrifying than the force they want to tame. Above all, human beings do not want a personal God who is holy, for nothing threatens sinful humanity more than the presence of the holy. Thus, no one would have invented the God of Christianity. And I want you to see that, if nothing else from this passage, one fear is replaced by another fear. And that fear is, who is this in the boat with us? Who is this? That even the elements of nature listen and respond obediently to his commands. That's not pantheism. That's not deism, that God is the watchmaker and he built it and took his hands away. That's not inventing a God. This is Christianity. That this is who is the king of the kingdom. Christ. God. With us. And then lastly. The peace of God. Is greater than the storms of life. The peace of God in our, in our text overcame the threats against them. The peace of God is described in Philippians 4-7 as that which surpasses all understanding. I can't explain it. I can't give you a, an equation or some um, saying to repeat that's going to falsely create a peace. Maybe I could, but it would be false. I can't tell you how to dot every I and cross every T. This peace of God surpasses all understanding. I mean, we're also told that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. What happens to your heart 
when you're facing troubles. We've already talked about it some. Well, God of love and sovereignty and care wouldn't do this. Well, where is he? He doesn't care. It will guard your minds. What happens in your minds? You begin to imagine the worst instead of the best. The peace of God, which passes understanding, guards your heart against unbelief. And it guards your mind against corrupt thinking about God and his relation with you. J.C. Ryle wrote, No stormy passions are so strong that he can tame them. No temper is so rough and violent that he can change it. No conscience so disquieted that he can speak peace to it and make it calm. No man ever need despair if he will only bow down his pride and come as a humble servant or humble sinner to Christ. What though our temptations be great? It is nothing. If Christ is on our side and we are in the ship with him, greater is he that is for us than all they that are against us. So we conclude that we have again a demonstration via miracle of the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom. Who then is this Jesus? We confess that he's Lord, that he's Messiah, that he's Savior, that he is God. May God bless you so to have that same confession and profession of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you will take what has been said and that you would make the applications of it deep into our hearts and minds, that you would feed your sheep, that you would scorn the unbeliever, that you would cause this uh, unquieted storm to rage in their breast and mind till they find safe harbor in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your peace that passes all understanding. And receive our thanksgiving in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're going to close a little differently today. Our uh, doxology actually is hymn number 630.